You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Greetings, Bill Nye here. Today, I'm made of plastic, recycled plastic. Bill Nye, the science guy, teamed up with Coca-Cola to promote the company's World Without Waste campaign and its recycling efforts. So the good people at the Coca-Cola company are dedicating themselves to addressing our global plastic waste problem. They know they have a responsibility to help solve this issue. And their goal? Create a world without waste. They want to turn every single plastic bottle of whatever you wanted before into a new bottle of whatever you want now. Some call foul because Coke has been consistently recognized as one of the world's worst plastic polluters. But Coke is just one of the companies accused of greenwashing, or making their products sound more environmentally friendly than they really are. And it's uncharted waters for the food and beverage industry as it grapples with a flood of lawsuits over what can and can't be said about their product's climate impact. And mixed judicial opinions make the waters even murkier. Just what does sustainable or recyclable mean? Joining me to answer that question is environmental law expert Pat Parento, a professor at the Vermont Law and Graduate School. Pat, Coca-Cola has had courtroom wins in two cases, one in D.C. and one in California, where judges found that Coke's environmental statements weren't misleading to consumers. In the D.C. case, the issue was with a tweet that said, business and sustainability are not separate stories for the Coca-Cola company, but different facets of the same story. How can you sue on a statement like that, which sounds so ambiguous? Yeah, that's the aspirational argument, right? That we aspire to be a company that is sustainable. But because we don't have a definition in law of sustainability, it's really difficult to win a lawsuit like that. The FTC guides are the major source of definitions of green labeling. But they're vague, and they keep getting updated, and the Federal Trade Commission is once again asking for public comments to upgrade and update the guides once more and try to put some definition to terms like sustainability and recyclability and recycled content and carbon neutral and all the rest of the, you know, advertising that's out there. But we in this country do not have a standard set of rules that would be enforceable in a court that really gives definition to these terms. That's the basic problem. 
Yeah, and in the California suit, the issue was with claims on Coke bottles that say the product is 100% recyclable. When most bottles, the plaintiffs claim, end in landfills or incinerators. But that doesn't mean it's not 100% recyclable if you do recycle it. Right. And that's one thing the FTC can actually address if they're willing to. And that is to say, if you're going to say that your product is recyclable, you're going to have to somehow, and this starts to get crowded on the label, right? But you're going to also have to say something about it doesn't mean that this product will be recycled, (laughs) okay? And, of course, that kind of defeats the whole point of the green advertising. If you have to disclaim what you've just said, then you're not really gaining much in terms of consumer approval. So it's a tricky, tricky issue to figure out how much information can you communicate on the label of your product or in the advertising before consumers just get more confused, right? So it's tricky. Of course, there are lots of cases where the judges have not been so sympathetic to the companies. For example, Nestle's lost a motion to dismiss a case about allegedly deceptive social and environmental benefits on its hot cocoa packaging. Do these decisions depend on the consumer laws in each state? They do now. If we had, you know, enforceable federal standards that were national, that would change that. But right now, that's why you see these cases being filed all over the country, every state. Many of them are in the District of Columbia, which is interesting, or California, which is not so surprising because California has a reputation of being plaintiff-friendly in cases like this. But yeah, it's state by state, and that gives rise to a patchwork of regulation and definition. And the companies you know, have to be aware that when they're marketing their products in these different states, they've got to know what the laws of those states are. And, of course, they have to be worried about being sued by the states themselves. All told, there's over 20 lawsuits brought by attorneys general, mostly against the fossil fuel industry, oil companies and so forth. But more and more, they're branching out to the plastics manufacturers, for example. So as a manufacturer and a marketer, you have to be worried about being sued by class action, by consumers or shareholders, being sued by attorneys general, or eventually by the Federal Trade Commission itself, and maybe even the Securities and Exchange Commission, which is also developing its own set of rules, which have been delayed and delayed and delayed. We're still waiting for those. And those are trying to flesh out this whole concept of ESG, right? Environment, social governance, and what kinds of claims that you're making on each one of those elements that are either misleading or exaggerated and so on. So we are really in an incredibly dynamic area of of combination of environmental law and consumer law. What kind of standards are the judges using? Are they different in each state? They do look to the FTC green guides. Some of the judges, anyway, do look to those. But as I said, they don't answer all the questions. They, For example, they don't define sustainability. Nobody has really come up with a durable, sort of measurable definition of what does that mean? What metrics do you use to measure whether what your business plan is, whether it's sustainable or not? Sustainable in terms of what? In terms of protecting biodiversity? In terms of protecting the climate? Both of those and even more in terms of not containing any toxic chemicals anywhere in the life cycle of the product, either its production, its transportation, its disposal. It really is 
a fiendishly complicated matter to try to put definition that you can take to court and say to the judge, this is the line they crossed, Your Honor. Here's the bright line that they crossed. And that's why these judges, I think, are struggling to come up with that kind of yardstick, that kind of measuring device. Is it worth it to these companies to put these claims on their cans and bottles? Probably not in some cases. I mean, they're seeking to gain market advantage, obviously. And by the way, there's another law that their competitors can use to sue them if they're claiming that their product is cleaner or better or more sustainable than somebody else's. So that's yet another aspect of this issue and that leads to litigation. But yeah, I think in some cases, in-house lawyers probably need to be more involved with the kinds of marketing claims that companies are making and weighing, is it worth the risk of being sued? Because as I've just said, you can get sued from many different angles. And even if you end up winning the case, you know, there's some impact on companies just by the virtue of being sued, let alone if they actually get a verdict against them. So yeah, I think companies have to weigh the reputational risk of stretching the truth, so to speak. Or we used to call this kind of activity puffery. You know, companies were entitled to puff their product. Best cup of coffee in the world kind of statements like that, right? But nowadays, you know, you can't get away with making bold claims like that and feel like there's no recourse for anyone because there is recourse. They may not win their lawsuit, but they can do damage to your brand in the process. I also wonder, someone who goes in to buy Pepsi, let's say, they know what they want. Are they going to change their mind and buy Coke because its bottle says it's 100% recyclable? The data suggests that Gen Z generation is more discerning when it comes to buying eco-friendly products, if we want to call them that, or services. I do think this generation, you know, I mean, they can pick up all kinds of information off of social media and regular media, right? I think they're more alert to this, you know, these kinds of claims, and they are looking for environmentally friendly products and services. So that market, you know, is one that companies, I think, do have to pay attention to, certainly in the fashion industry, clothing industry, and so forth, they do have to not only market themselves appropriately, but actually be changing their methods of production, their supply chains, if you will, to try to green them up, try to become more environmentally responsible. But in the end, if you're just thinking that you can say whatever you want to say about your product and not suffer any consequences, I think that day is over. I mean, when does the FTC bring enforcement actions? I read about the allegation that Walmart and Kohl's falsely marketed sheets, towels, and other textile products as being made of eco-friendly bamboo when they were actually made of rayon. And then there was a $2.5 million and $3 million civil penalty. What does it take to, for the FTC to come in? Yeah, that, that's their enforcement discretion. So they picked the cases, obviously, they, they, where they have the strongest facts and, and uh, you know, the high probability of success. They, they keep, they track on the FTC website, they track all their cases. So you can go there and look at, I'm looking at it right now, and there's at least 50 I'm looking at right here going back to 2015. Really? And they're against big companies. Yeah, Benjamin Moore, uh, Volkswagen, uh, Bed Bath & Beyond, Nordstrom, JCPenney. 
Coles, Walmart. So, you know, they're they're taking on some of the big players in the marketplace, and they are recovering million dollar plus penalties. Um, but you know, that that may represent uh, the tip of the, the proverbial tip of the iceberg, right? In terms of how many cases can these FT, uh, can FTC actually bring? That's a function of how much staff they have and and how much you know time and money they can spend it's kind of the same thing with the irs you know they they have to you know target uh some cases to try to make a point and send a a message to the marketplace but they can't police every single instance where there might be misrepresentation but they can certainly uh beef up the number of enforcement actions they take and the penalties that they seek the laws uh you know the federal trade commission act it, it, it does include, you know, the potential for some significant penalties. It can even include unjust enrichment and profits, ill-gotten gains, I guess, would be the term to use for that. Um, so, yeah, that, I mean, the federal government, if it wants to take a stronger role in, in these enforcement cases, can probably begin to send the message to the marketplace louder than these random class action cases. I mean, those always depend on the quality of the evidence, um, the, the quality of the lawyers, frankly, and how familiar they are with litigating these kinds of cases. Um, the judges that you draw that are maybe disposed towards uh, one side or the other in the case, you know, they may be business-friendly uh, judges as opposed to consumer-friendly. There's, there's so many variables. As we say, litigation is a crapshoot, right? It's there's so many things that have to go right in a case for you to win it that, you know, you're going to see different results across the country for sure. So does the are most of the FTC cases not litigated at trial but settled? Yes. Yeah, that is clear from the lineup of cases that I'm, I'm looking at. Almost every single one of these have resulted in settlements. Um, and again, you know, companies don't want to be in the news and, and they don't want to be on somebody's, you know, most wanted list or hit list. So the inclination, I think, for companies when they uh, certainly when they're sued by the Federal Trade Commission, their instinct, their lawyers are going to say, let's get this over with um, sooner rather than later. Even even if we have defenses, even if we have arguments in the end, it's probably better to get this thing behind us than it is to keep fighting over it. So, not every company's like that. Exxon's not like that. <laughs> Exxon is going to fight to the death. But but but, a, but Volkswagen, come on, they don't they don't want to be you know written up as a company that's dishonest. They've already got the, enough problems with that. Has the FTC updated the rules, and they're out for now for comment? Uh, they, they're they're in the process of requesting comment to y- make yet another update. I think they've had they started in 1992, and I know they've had at least four different versions since then. So we're talking about something like the fifth iteration um, of these guides. And and by the way, these are not rules. Okay, so the FTC can use these if it wants to bring an enforcement action, but it still has to prove, um, you know, the merits of the false advertising, let's say, uh, that's that's at issue. So the guides are not like, they don't have the force of law by themselves. 
Um, you could turn those guides into rules. You could even give citizens the right to enforce those rules. Um, and, and that would be taking it up yet another level uh, of, of enforcement. Do, they, do those rules define sustainability, compostability? No, that, they've asked for comments on both of those items. And recyclable. What, yeah, and recyclable. Uh, what more, uh, you know, should we say in the guides that companies must disclose and explain? And, you know, it gets down to things like don't put all these disclaimers in the fine print on the back of the label <laughs> or the back of the bottle, right? Don't say on the front of the Bible, a bottle, um, you know, this is, uh, you know, pure ingredients. And then on the back say, ah, well, we didn't really mean that. Not purely, you know, pure. So, you know, that's what I mean. You, 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 you're talking about the design, the front side <laughs> of, of what you're putting on your labels. And, and at some point you just run out of space. Um, and in any case, you run out of people's patience. You know, in reading it now, you can use barcodes, I guess. You know, that's another device that at least I've read about where, you know, and I've, I've even talked to some of my students who do this. You know, you can turn if you have the right QR code, you can you can you can scan a barcode on a product you're looking at and find out it's it's a sort of genealogy, if you will. Where did it come from? If they say that it's responsibly sourced palm oil. Well, there's, there's apparently, there's devices and, and, and programs out there that can double-check that. Or if they say it's been certified by, you know, some independent uh, certifier of products, you can go to that certif- certification source and find out whether that's true. Now, how many consumers are going to be willing to go to that much trouble? I don't know. But I, I, I know that with our technology... We're getting to the point where you can find out a whole lot more about products than we ever used to, if you want to. Yeah, so Lena Khan, it struck me that the head of the FTC, Lena Khan, said that consumers have almost no way of knowing if they're being fed misleading climate assertions. For consumers, she said, it's really impossible to be verifying these claims. Yes. So you do have to rely on these third-party verification. And, And this is really true for carbon offsets, you know. There's all kinds of different now protocols and standards for if you're going to claim carbon zero, net zero carbon and so forth, carbon neutrality, um, and, and you're doing that because you're buying offsets, then the question is who's certified, certifying that those offsets are legitimate? And <clears throat> there's a bunch of different comp- uh, entities out there claiming to, to be doing this certification, but then you have to ask, well, who are they? Right, and where are they getting their money uh, to do this certification, and is it valid? So consumers can't independently certify this stuff. We're, we are going to be increasingly relying on third-party certification, but who's certifying the certifier? That's that's what that becomes. Yeah. Well, I'm sure we're going to see a lot more of these types of lawsuits going forward. Thanks so much, Pat. Always appreciate your coming on the show. That- Thanks, Pat. That's Pat Parento, a professor at the Vermont Law and Graduate School. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. 
And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Some hacker is hitting our financial markets. Four major banks, and that's just what we know about? If we want clues to the hacker's identity, we need a man named Hathaway. What do we know about this guy? He's a convicted hacker serving 15 years. Genius coder. There are so many movies like Black Hat where a genius hacker breaks into computer systems that everyone thought were absolutely secure. But in real life, sometimes it doesn't even take a hacker to steal sensitive information. Case in point. The international law firm Proskauer Rose is suing its former chief operating officer for swiping more than 34 gigabytes of sensitive information. In the lawsuit, Proskauer alleges that Jonathan O'Brien downloaded confidential documents onto a thumb drive after tricking a tech employee into letting him bypass the firm's internal security controls. O'Brien denied the charges through his attorney. Joining me is attorney Jeff Lewis of Jeff Lewis Law. Proskauer, which is nearing its 150th anniversary, said the firm is unaware of any employee, much less an officer, ever acting in such a corrupt, debased, and illegal manner. Have you heard of anything like this at any other law firm? No, I've handled trade secrets litigation cases, not in the law firm context, where this kind of thing happens. A disgruntled employee goes to work for a competitor, but I've never read such a high-level employee of a big law firm doing this. In the complaint, Proskauer calls him a crafty plotter. O'Brien allegedly pilfered electronic files relating to Proskauer financials, practice information, and billing rates. From your look at it, Has he allegedly taken information that's very important to the firm that would be something considered like trade secrets? Absolutely. It's one thing for an employee to leave one firm and work for another. The things that reside in an employee's head stay in his head, and that's not a protectable trade secret. But when you take a thumb drive and you bypass security and you download compensation of various partners or how various practice areas are doing within a firm, you're giving a playbook to a competitor who could use that to strategize about how to pick off or take either practice areas, clients, or partners or associates from a competing law firm. The firm said that its computer systems are programmed to prevent copying information onto removable drives like the USB drive that allegedly O'Brien used and that O'Brien allegedly tricked a technology employee into letting him copy the data by saying it had been requested by an outside consultant. And in an affidavit, one from the director of technical support, he said because of O'Brien's status as the firm's COO, we treated his request to copy files to a USB drive as fully authorized. It didn't require review by anyone else. 
I can tell you this much from this point forward, I imagine big law firms and other big companies that are outside the law firm context will not allow IT officials to accept one person, even an officer's word that a security measure's got to be uh, overridden. One thing that I found interesting, there's a suggestion there, an accusation that he lifted a litigation hold and caused thousands of his emails to be deleted. And if true, there may be some loss there of client-related data. So forgetting what he put in his pocket in terms of what the firm lost access to, there's a lot of emails with pending litigation that will never see the light of day because of what this guy did. He denied the allegations through his attorney. His lawyer said, as you can imagine, Mr. O'Brien has a very different perspective on the case and is eager to tell his story, which will provide the truth of what actually happened. And I'm wondering, you know, if someone has that information, what kind of excuse could there be? Yeah, that's a great question. So if the allegations are to be believed that he uh, not only took data, but took a proprietary software that the firm had spent money developing, I can't imagine any spin or explanation that would authorize an employee to take firm software with them. The data, you know, he might claim that some of it was his work product, it's, it's documents that he created and he was entitled to take. You know, there's a way to spin that, but the software and the data, and as I indicated earlier, the deletion of thousands of emails, there's no explanation that'll be good enough to explain that away. So if someone has information like that, let's not talk about this case, but just in general, if someone has information like that, that would be helpful to work at a competing firm to give them that information? Yeah. If you think, you know, right now it's a tough time to hire associate lawyers, all right? It is a employee's market, in my opinion. And if employers want to make enticing um, offers to employees and they already know what they're going to be paid or what the bonus structure is at a competing firm, they can tailor who they're going to make offers to and what those offers will be and hire away the best talent. In the complaint, Proskauer alleges O'Brien's conduct was so brazen and malicious that it rises to criminal law violation. Let's say someone is guilty of doing what he did. Is that a criminal violation as well? Would be. You know, misusing your authority to take valuable information. Uh, there's computer hacking laws that this this violates. And in addition, it's larceny or embezzlement that takes such valuable things that could be taken and given to a competitor. There's a number of crimes that could be charged here. Jeff, would it take an independent investigation by the Manhattan District Attorney's Office to bring any criminal charges in this case? Yeah, and in my experience, most of the time when the DA sees uh, that a civil lawsuit has already been filed, they're not likely to jump in and also uh, see criminal charges. It's not a, a high priority for DA's offices, in, in my experience. Proskauer is this billion-dollar law firm. You know, it's got a great yeah. name. And what kind of a hit could it take to its reputation from something like this? Well, think about this. If you're a client and you're relying on this law firm to protect your secrets, if they can't keep their own house in order and keep their own secret secret, and one major security measure can be overturned with one person's directive to an IT person, clients might become doubtful of that firm's ability to safeguard client data, and employees and partners of that firm 
may have concerns about the leadership and security of their files and whether or not their house is being run in an appropriate fashion. Thanks, Jeff. That's Jeff Lewis. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.